When we are not planning the next Emirates Airline Festival of Literature, we're guessing who done it, debating the ultimate feel-good novel, or reading the stacks of books that lie in our office walls. Then we talk to some of our favourite authors about these books on the Boundless Book Club, a bi-weekly podcast from the Emirates Literature Foundation. Subscribe today wherever you are listening right now. You'll also find a link in the show notes. This session was recorded at the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature 2021 with a live audience. Right, good day. Happy Friday and welcome to the 13th Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. I'm Brandy Scott. I am your moderator for today's session on tackling the anti-facts movement. The theme for this year's festival, if you've been here for more than five minutes, you will have spotted it, is change the story. And that's what we are going to be discussing this morning. The coronavirus pandemic has brought with it a wave of misinformation, whether that is from the benign and well-meaning rumor uh, to the outright conspiracy theory. And some of it is nothing new. Anti-vaccination sentiment, as Dr. Nathar is going to tell us, is nothing new. But the consequences this time range from lives to us all getting our life back to normal. So we are talking today about what needs to happen if we are going to change the story. And it is important the University of Cambridge has done a study recently to show that people who believe misinformation are more likely to not socially distance, not wear their masks, uh, not vaccinate, and basically not follow the rules. So there are real world implications of the stuff that we forward on WhatsApp. Right, our panel of medical experts this morning are gonna tackle this for you. Uh, before I introduce them though, we do have a little bit of housekeeping this morning. This year, as Colm just said there, is a little bit different um, than what we are used to, hopefully not too much. If you are worried about the empty seats around you, please know that we have a very big audience at home that are live streaming this. A lot of people at the moment are isolating, um, a lot of people are concerned, people have tested positive. We're happy that you are at home watching us and hope that you enjoy this session as much as we will here. Phones, as usual, often on silent. Uh, we're going to run for about an hour. That's going to be 45 minutes of us having a chit-chat and then 15 minutes of questions. We've got standing microphones rather than roaming microphones this year for reasons of social distancing. Uh, and when we get to that point, I'll tell you the rules around how we're using those. Two of our guests are joining us virtually. As you can see, they're joining us from the UK, and I don't need to tell you why they haven't hopped on a plane and come here at the moment. Um, if there's any lag, just bear with us, but the technology has been working brilliantly so far. And I also just want to say before we start, I know that we are discussing something that can be quite emotive and that people have some strongly held opinions about, which is great. Um, the point of a literature festival is to be able to respect everybody's positions um, and still have a lively discourse about those positions. So what I really want to do today is sort of suck the emotion out of it so that we're not discussing whose position is right. Um, this isn't Twitter. No one ever wins an argument on Twitter. But so we are talking about what needs to be done for the, the greater good. With that, I just have to thank our session sponsors, who are the Investment Corporation of Dubai and Gulf News. Thank you very much. Humongously appreciated. And introduce our panelists today. Okay, joining us from just outside Oxford in the UK, above my head on the left, 
we have Jay, Jay Mohan. He is a consultant pediatric neurosurgeon. Uh, he works in the NHS. He's also the author of the nonfiction bestseller, Everything That Makes Us Human. You may also recognize him from BBC documentaries, if you have the streaming iPlayer or indeed a dodgy box. Also from the UK, and no stranger to a BBC series or two, is Dr. Rupi Aljula. He is a GP. He's the best-selling author of three books, including The Doctor's Kitchen, which is also, by the way, a fabulous podcast. Not that I would encourage you to listen to a podcast rather than your local radio. He's joining us from London, where he is working with A&E patients at the moment, and he has also been instrumental in setting up an information network for the relatives of those suffering from COVID in ICU wards in London and the UK. And on stage with me, my live guest today, thank goodness for that, is Dr. Nafa Aliesi, uh, a man who I'm already very fond of because he toured New Zealand because he likes Lord of the Rings. He is a pediatric gastroenterologist. He's working in the Abu Dhabi health system in a hospital there. Uh, he was last year working on the front line with COVID patients. Uh, and he's also a novelist. He's written several novels, including The Unforgotten Patient and Critical Case. Uh, one of his latest novels actually deals with a pandemic outbreak um, and concern about vaccination. So there you go, life imitating art. Let's start by what we're looking at when we're looking at this. The World Health Organization has said that we are not only in a pandemic, we are also in an infodemic. So what are we fighting here, Dr. Nafa, when we are fighting misinformation? What's the situation at the moment? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for coming here. Well, the situation is, uh, you know, it's moving, it's changing, it's very dramatic. When we had the pandemic at the beginning, the beginning of the epidemic, it was in China at the beginning, people were very hesitant. They were asking, like, should we get stuff from China? Should we buy stuff from China? Should we get stuff from Alibaba, for example, Alibaba Express? And people were scared. What is this new virus? We did not know. We did not have so much information about this coronavirus. And with time, we started to have more cases emerging from other parts of, uh, of the world, from Iran, from Italy, and they started to become to come in the country. I think we had the first case by the end of January, the first four cases, they were coming from family from Wuhan, and people were panicking at the beginning. And when people start to panic, the fear starts. When people start to fear, they take the wrong actions. They start to ask so many questions, and sometimes they don't have an answer. We cannot have the best answer at the beginning because we don't know much about this virus until we knew uh, in the next like few months. So people were starting to ask, and there's a big platform now, which is called the social media. So people were asking, and unfortunately, in the social media, it's like a big ocean. You can get whatever answers you want. Sometimes you get the wrong answers because you ask the wrong people. So at the beginning, I mean, people started to have misinformation. This was the origin of the misinformation. The first, like, I mean, in the country here, the first, like, uh, uh, the first misinformation we started to hear about is that uh, this virus is very dangerous on kids. People were very much worried, although we did not know that in the beginning, but we noticed that it's not that dangerous on children. The other question is how can we prevent having the, the virus? Well, locally, people will ask you to put this whole thing, the smoke, it will prevent. Some people said that. Or if you take this kind of food or this kind of fruit, it will boost your immunity and you'll be fine, you'll be protected against this virus. And things started to move on. 
the moment we started to have talks about the lockdowns or the national uh, sterilization uh, program, similar to the lockdown, I mean, the other questions started to appear. I mean, uh, how many cases do we have? What are the nationalities? People started to ask about the nation nationalities of the, the cases. And how can we prevent having those uh, cases? And later on, the question, the emerging question was, when are we going to have the vaccine? This was like in April, May period, when we started to have the vaccine or the volunteering for the vaccine, the Sinopharm vaccine in Abu Dhabi, people started to ask the more mm -hmm. difficult question. Is it safe vaccine or not? And that's it. The questions are keep emerging. Now, now we're having different questions, and I'm sure in the next couple of months, we'll have different sort of questions. Okay. Jay, from your point of view in the UK, where is the misinformation centering at the moment? What are your biggest concerns? Um, good afternoon or evening, everybody. Um, the, the misinformation, I think, um, is coming uh, from, uh, actually, coming from the internet overall. So there is social media, but I think we need to be aware that not only social media is a source of misinformation. It's spread through internet websites, it's spread through face-to-face -face, uh, uh, discussions between family members and, and within uh, cultural groups, especially in the UK, we're finding certain uh, uh, groups of uh, minority ethnic uh, people in the UK have got misinformation spread internally within that group. And certainly within the Asian and black communities, there's a lot of work to be done to try and fight that. But I think, well, Nafi talk about the, the change within the COVID year, but I think we have to remember that this is coming on the background of a long history of uh, there being problems and complications of medicines. Uh, and we can think back right the way through to initial vaccines, which are quite dangerous. Uh, those of you, uh, older members of the audience, uh, will remember the thalidomide scandals from the 60s and 70s where the healthcare system told patients that these drugs were safe, and they were not. And they were told in those days, and so I've been a consultant 17 years, and when I started as the boss, I would say to my the parents of my kids, don't worry, I'm going to do this operation, you trust me, let's get on. And what we've tried to move away as a medical profession is away from that very paternalistic view of the doctors and the scientists know best and you, the simple people, just listen to what we say. And we've tried to encourage actually questioning and we need to give more information to our patients. And so that works from an individual patient right the way through to a population. So we've encouraged this and it's right and proper that there should be scrutiny of what a powerful uh, organization like the medical profession and the pharmaceutical professions do. Well, what we have failed to do is to give that information in a digestible, understandable way to people, whereas what you hear in what I'm going to brand misinformation, incorrect stuff, because it generally doesn't come from specialists, is actually couched in terms that people will understand more easily. And so we are we are not giving the information in as easily digestible form that the misinformation is coming from. 
Uh, and the last bit I would add in is certainly in the UK, uh, politics over the last 10 years has uh, taken to uh, disagreeing with findings of fact because it doesn't fit the politics that that person is giving. And certainly we've had politicians who have said, we are sick of these experts giving them, giving us uh, their opinions and basically telling us what to do and promoting a very doubtful environment. And if you're the politicians leading the country and you're saying to the population, these so-called experts, what do they know? Um, I think that a lot of it is wrong. Then people will listen to that and will come on the back of what they're hearing and say, well, everybody's saying that the experts are incorrect. So why should I trust what you doctors are telling us? And that's where I think we need to start the fight. We need to understand how deep-rooted some of this um, misinformation is, not only about vaccination, but about medicine and about doctors and ultimately about people in power. And that's really, really where I think this comes down to. But distrust of what authorities say to us is, is nothing new. Uh, Anti-vaccination sentiment is nothing new. Uh, Dr. Rupi, why do you think it's so supercharged this time? I think, well, firstly, I, I think a lot of what Jay said um, really does resonate with me. And I think to answer your question about why in this particular scenario is the sentiment of uh, distrust um, accelerated or supercharged is because on the one hand, we have media outlets and then websites and, and uh, um, just generally where you can get information, but social media in particular rewards negativity. It exploits the very weaknesses of the human mind and we are naturally drawn toward negative bias. So when someone is saying something outside of the traditional narrative, that's what you're going to be intuitively more drawn towards. And I think it fuels the misinformation in that respect as well. The other thing, and I think to, to go on to Jay's point, is that the pandemic has sort of played into the underlying um, sentiment of distrust um, in a post-Brexit scenario where you had uh, quite blatant lies being told by the very po politicians that are in power at the moment. You're probably more inclined to not believe them the second time as well. And if there is another narrative that's being played out, maybe that's putting people who are otherwise neutral more towards in camps that um, breed misinformation as well. Um, again, ethnic minorities in particular, my own experience being an Amy doctor, I, I see the division there. I mean, there are language barriers, which is why a lot of misinformation can perpetuate throughout these communities. Um, but there's also, and this speaks to how um, there are tiered levels of, of medical um, care in the UK pre-pandemic, where an educated person who speaks the language can extract a lot more information from me, regardless of whether I give this person less or more time, than someone who doesn't come from an educated background or speaks a different language. And so, you know, you're, you're more likely to get misinformation bred in the latter group for that reason. And I think, you know, we, we haven't, again, been very clear with the language that we use. And I think there is this almost move towards a more authoritarian structure of medicine, which I disagree with. And I think 
particularly as this is a novel virus and a novel vaccine, we need to have a more nuanced discussion rather than just saying this, this is, is right and this is wrong, regardless of whether the uh, sentiment behind that is uh, in, in the best interest of the country or the globe, I should say. How do you do that, though, when some of the information is changing, whether that is between the distances that you should keep from people, the length of time that people need to isolate, even maybe conflicting information, you know, your kids can go to school, but the parents are working from home, and it's safe to go to school, but it's not safe to see your grandma. I mean, Jay, you work with parents all the time, you're a paediatric neurosurgeon. How do you deal with conflicting information like that when you're trying to give a message? I think you have to put it into context that people will understand. Um, and to me, I think if we're going to get anything, the, the, the underlying message through this entire conversation is about being able to discuss it in a way that people will be able to understand and digest. So, for example, the analogies I would use in this situation where, where people have said, yeah, I do not think that I'm going to give it to my grandma if I go and visit. The analogy is this. If you are in the pub with your friend and your friend has had too much alcohol and says, I'm going to drive home, you would not say, that's fine, it's your right, you're an individual, you do what you want. You would take the keys off them and stop them driving for two reasons. One is to save themselves, but secondly is to save other people who may inadvertently be caught up in that illness which is what being intoxicated is. And that, to me, is no different from if somebody says, I am going to mix with people just to socialize in a party, and then I'm going to go and go to a shop where I might get infected. And if you're 22, you may well be asymptomatic and get through this without any problems at all. But you may go to a party and get the infection, which is fine for you. But then you go to the shop, and the next person who gets it from you, or you touch your face and you touch a pepper that someone else picks up, who's got all kinds of significant illnesses, which means if they get infected, they may well die from it. Now, what, what you are doing by, what I am doing by trying to get people to do the safety measures to reduce the spread is exactly the same as every person in the room or watching would do if their friend was trying to drive while drunk, you would not let them do it. Um, and to me, it's no different. Driving without a seatbelt is inconceivable now. And yet there was a time when everybody did it. It's all about learning that, there, that, that things change and social mores change. And, and this is a, if I, if we think about I'm going to tell you that my personal experience of maybe 18 or 24 months ago, lots of uh, people, students who come from Hong Kong and China to Oxford to study, have for many, many years worn face masks if they have a cold or a cough. And in actual fact, it was a point of derision around the world that patients, that people from China, Hong Kong, uh, Japan wear face masks if they are unwell. Actually, turns out that they were completely ahead of the curve. And just a simple thing like that, reducing infection, whether it's as dangerous as COVID or as annoying as a cold, 
is all about us coming together as a, as a social group, as a community and saying, let's do what is best for everybody rather than just doing what's best for me. So that's the view I would take. And that's the argument I would use to my family when I'm saying, do not take your child to go and visit grandma for the following reason. And when you explain that to parents, and they think that could be my kid getting hit by a truck driver, or that could be your mother getting infected by your child. It's exactly the same. Okay, well, let's have a look at vaccination. Um, emotive subject. We've obviously got a big vaccination drive here in the UAE. Um, Dr. Nafa, in the different communities here, particularly your own community, how are you seeing that being received? Well, uh... In general, there is a big trust here with the government. So when the government initially they brought the, the vaccinations, they were one of the first countries to get the Sinopharm vaccine and the, the, the Pfizer vaccine at the beginning. And at the beginning, people were a bit hesitant to take the vaccine because they were not aware of the side effects, potential side effects, because what they heard so far is that these vaccines might be dangerous. There is no enough not enough research on the vaccines. Usually the vaccines take years and years to get approved, but those vaccines got approved like within months. So people in the beginning were hesitant to take the vaccine. But within time, the moment they noticed the leaders are taking the vaccine, mm -hmm. they were the first ones who took the vaccines, the, 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 the vice president uh, and the other, uh, other uh, rulers, they started to believe in the vaccine. And the more people started to take the vaccines, the more Plus, they started to gain in the vaccines, including my family, my friends. At the beginning, like back six months back or five months back, they were some kind hesitant to take the vaccine. I'm not going to say anti-vaccine, but they were a bit hesitant. When they saw me take the vaccine, when they saw my cousins taking the vaccine, they became more fine with taking the vaccine. So in general, I believe that uh, the people here in the country, the locals and even the non-locals are more of accepting the vaccines and I think and I think that UAE will be one of the first countries in in the world to be vaccinated in a in a large scale. So far we are the second after Israel in the coverage of the vaccines. We are above like 35% in the vaccination. I think we'll reach the benchmark the benchmark of 60 or 70% before the summer. How much does the I mean, we have a big vaccination campaign, but you could also argue that we are disincentivizing at the moment not being vaccinated. If you are a government worker, you have to constantly PCR test, which is yeah. painful and annoying, well, uncomfortable and annoying at your own expense. Ditto mm. if you are a private sector teacher in Sharjah, a lot of companies in the hospitality industry bringing that in as well. What works most? Is it a carrot approach or a stick approach? Do you incentivize or do you disincentivize? Well, in my opinion, I think, I mean, although it's not mandatory to take the vaccine here in the UAE, but in another way, it's semi-mandatory. They will not force you to take the vaccine, but they will ask you to do a COVID test like once a week now. I mean, in, uh, in, uh, in Abu Dhabi government, UAE, the whole federal government, it's mandatory to test once weekly if you don't take the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So this, this pushed so many people to take the vaccine. Uh, I believe in, in asking people to take the vaccine instead of giving them the option. If we give the option, there will be some kind of hesitancy. They will ask, like, why the government isn't forcing us to take the vaccine. And if you keep the people, like, give them the option of not taking the vaccine, they will be staying at home and waiting. This will delay the pandemic. 
I mean, we are pushing so hard to finish and end this pandemic. So I think, I think there will be more restrictions or more, uh, uh, more rules towards uh, mandatory vaccinations. Although they will not say that this is mandatory, but it, I mean, in a, in a quiet way, it will be some, somehow mandatory. Here. Quietly mandatory. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Repeat, how do you do that in the UK where people may be a little bit more libertarian, where it might be a little bit more about individual freedom rather than collective responsibility, particularly amongst the ethnic minorities? We know that black and Asian ethnic minorities are four times more likely to die from COVID, but are also mm. far less likely to take a vaccine. Yeah, it's, um, it's a very difficult question. Uh, and I think it's... Um, it's definitely one with lots of nuance. I think the first point that we as medical professionals uh, need to sort of emphasize is, um, is, is honesty. We need to be honest about the fact that it is a novel vaccine. Mm -hmm. It is a novel virus. And yes, it is an unprecedented drive and feat of human engineering that we've actually been able to deliver a vaccine within such a short time scale. Um, and I think, you know, vaccine hesitancy whilst traditionally i'm uh of the opinion that we really need to be quite forward with vaccines particularly in childhood immunizations and the, the other vaccines that i deliver as a general practitioner with this one it requires more of a conversation i want to preface that by saying i'm absolutely pro vaccine i'm having my vaccine next week um but i think that the hesitancy is to be expected rather than ridiculed um, and once we can have those conversations more honestly, and I think using, again, the approach that Jay was talking about in common language speak, that's how we get access to, to communities that are far more at risk and have worse outcomes as well, particularly those from black and ethnic minorities in the UK. So that's sort of my long-winded, very vague answer to how to deal with this issue. But it's a very complex topic that requires, I think, a lot more conversation around um, distrust of the medical profession and what actually is the deep root of that as well. And I think it comes down to some previous practices and the way medicine is changing in terms of its culture and the patient-doctor relationship. Jay, carrot or stick? Um, I think that in the UK, it has to be carrot. Uh, because um, uh, the way that uh, well the way that British people are sticks don't work. Uh, they work in some parts of the world where, where actually it is very much more a community-driven decision-making process. But um, what we are seeing is that that you need many different flavours of carrot. Turns out um, one carrot does not fit fit all, uh, and this is part of the issue. Is uh, the pro of having a vaccine is it lowers the risk of you getting COVID. Uh, and that can, that message we can give out. The problem is that the, the anti depends on who you're talking to. And there is not a one answer fits all for the concerns that people have. So for some members of our community, there was a huge amount of misinformation that there were pork products in the vaccine completely untrue, completely unfounded, but not addressed in the initial fight against the anti-vaccine, if you like, the anti-anti, um, 
because it wasn't considered to be uh, the, the issue. At the time, there was a lot of debate about, um, well, for, for the expat community, we'll know uh, Lawrence Fox. There was a huge debate about it all being about libertarian values, this, this very sort of pro-American uh, libertarian view. And so that was where the argument was focused and fighting was a libertarian view about, well, if I don't want to, it's up to me. And that's the argument which I think I gave earlier about the, the, the drink driving analogy and working for the community. But unbeknownst to us, while we were trying to fight that one, there was a, 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 you know, another fire breaking out about pork uh, products. There was another fire breaking out comparing it to the autism scandal from that uh, complete charlatan um, from the 1980s, um, whose name I'm not going to utter because it makes me so angry. Um, there was another fire uh, breaking out about um, the numbers that are being described for COVID. We've had people breaking into hospitals and taking photos of yeah. corridors and saying, look, there's no COVID. So the, 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 the beast that we're fighting, the heads are sprouting and changing. And we, as this huge, slothful medical organization, are not being agile enough to look to see where the arguments are changing and then fighting each of those where, where you know, there's a tendency just to go, well, if you don't believe in vaccination, you must be an idiot. Uh, and uh, all that does is build a permanent division between us. And we're never going to get those people back on board without saying, well, what is the issue that you personally have? Not about what the other person has, because it may be completely irrelevant to, to this argument. Tailoring that discussion takes time, effort, and inevitably money. And we haven't got enough of any of it. Well, let's look at the information that is being given out. Dr. Nathar, if we look here in the UAE, mm -hmm. at, and we're talking about government trust here, aren't we? We're talking about transparency. Let's look at the numbers that we get every day um, and how they're broken down and what we know. So we get the numbers every, uh, every day, but uh, what we get is the total number of cases, how many tests were done, and how many deaths cases were done. We have seven emirates here. It's like a federal uh, country. We have so, so seven different emirates, seven different governments, many governments, and one big government. We don't have the distribution of the cases in each, each emirate. We, I mean, the, although they have it in, the, I mean, the government has the numbers, but they don't distribute it to the, to the public. This created a big question in the beginning. Why don't you tell us how many cases are in Dubai? People started to believe that most of the cases or Dubai is the hot zone. I mean, the answer was clear. If you say that this emirate or this particular city does not have any COVID cases, people will take it very lightly. People will take off the vaccines. Uh, they will take off the masks because the masks are mandatory. They will start to socialize because we don't have cases in Masar Khaimah, for example. But when you tell them that the whole country, these are the number of cases people will be hesitant to take off the, their mask and practice uh, social distancing. So I think, I believe it's like, it's not the best thing to give all the information to the public because it will be misunderstood by the people sometimes. It's very important to give them the right information, what they need and what will make them uh, follow the regulations and move forward. If you give them too much information, you will get too much misinformation, mis misunderstanding of their information. And this might delay the, the combat against the, the pandemic and the virus itself. What about 
On the other side of that, the information that people are sharing. I mean, my WhatsApp's never been so busy. It pings all day. Every time someone sees something, they send it to me, whether it's a school notice or a government notice about the Abu Dhabi border. And we've got quite strict penalties here mm -hmm. for yeah. that. Where is the line between freedom of speech and rumour mongering? Well, there was a clear uh, regulation about uh, spreading the rumours, especially about the COVID in the past six months. Whoever spreads misinformation, wrong information about anything might be per persecuted. And we had some cases with locals, with local people. Some guy in August appeared on, on the TV and he gave a story about a family of four who got COVID and four of, I mean, a big family, four of them who died with COVID within a week. You know, when people give the stories, usually people get very emotional. And we as human beings, we, we live by stories. This story was very emotional. It went very viral. But later on, two days later, we discovered that this is a hoax. This is not a true story. He was persecuted. He's currently in jail. We are taking it very strictly about misinformation. I, I believe in freedom of speech. But freedom of speech, if it affects my health and the health of the family and if it affects the health of the public, this is not freedom of speech. This, this, is, is, uh, this is basically uh, a cause of problems in the, uh, in the community and cause of sometimes death in the, in the community. If I'm giving a wrong information about something and someone believes in this wrong information, let's say telling the people uh, that uh, the masks are uh, dangerous to your health and people started to believe in me, and some people took off their mask, did not go to hospital because they believe the hospital is not doing good. Okay, some of them might die. And unfortunately, even some people died because of this misinformation. But I'm happy that the country is taking it very strictly. Those who are spreading the rumors, whether on WhatsApp, Twitter, Instagram, they are persecuted at some point. Dr. Rupi, whose job is it? Is it the government's? Is it the social media networks to get rid of the... Uh... The misinformation out there is it the governments to crack down on the social media networks and find them well let, let's take the example um that we are going to aggressively uh hunt down anyone that is being seen to promote misinformation well, from what my anecdotal experiences and i believe jay's as well you'd be um basically hunting down a whole bunch of people from black and ethnic minority groups and furthering the divide between those people and everyone else so i think the crackdown on freedom of speech within reason i i think it's quite murky and i think that opens up a lot of um potential ways in which you can further divide people and actually create even worse tier systems between education and, and, and health. So uh, I think the way to tackle misinformation, and, and, and there's also the other uh, concern that people might be uh, spreading misinformation without malintent. They might actually think that they're doing something good uh, by educating people on actually what's really going on. So I think you know that there, are, there are nuances to that discussion as well. I think it all comes down to being better at branding and better communicators from our side. So using plain language, being honest, uh, and not playing you into the fear games as well. So I, I think it really comes down to uh, better information from our side. And like Jay said, it costs a lot of money and it takes a lot of time. Um, so I, I, and I, I know that 
I don't think in the UK, I can only speak for the UK perhaps, um, that that would go down very well in terms of um, really punishing uh, misinformation in, in, in that way. So what's the emotive load on you, though? I mean, you're an NHS doctor. You will have seen a lot of your colleagues contract COVID. You had COVID last month. Um, and you've got people outside your hospitals yelling that it's a hoax. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a huge mental health toil. You know, we have nurses uh, who work in the ICU who work their arse, oh, sorry, uh, that work their backsides off um, for 12, 13 hours a day. And then they go online and they see people not wearing their masks, perhaps even family members and friends uh, going about their, their day, not really thinking about it. So it's a huge, huge tour. And I think that conjures up anger. But rather than play into the normal um, psyche of, of how we react to that with anger, we actually need to use a lot more compassion. And it's hard to do when you see that and it's being slapped into your face like that. So, you know, my... my for what it's worth, my suggestion is it is to be better communicators at what we are saying and actually spread the right information in a way that's more accessible to more people because that's something that we haven't done very well from a political standpoint or and a medical standpoint. Jay, what do you think? I mean, you've got your junior doctors out there on the front line, your junior surgeons have been drafted yeah. out from your department into the, the ICU. Yes. Um, and uh, some of them have become very unwell, um, and certainly uh, we've um, unfortunately lost, uh, you know, I've lost friends um, who have died from COVID, um, uh, and it's very, very tough. But it, 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 um, this is kind of what we do, um, and what we signed up for, and um, a bit like joining the army, but then if there's a battle going, well, I, don't, well, I didn't really sign up to go into war. I just wanted to run around. Um, this is what we do. Um, and however low we feel about the misinformation, we have to try and fight it with information. And it, inherently, I have, I think I have a, a, a different view from Dr. Nafi. I think, you know, there is a, there's clearly influences about where you grow up and, and how your view of the world and your position in the world comes in. And you know, if we if we think about mass health system uh, intervention in the past, there are clear pros. Uh, the, the biggest one you could put is smallpox, which is um, the, the, the beacon of mass immunization that we as a medical profession need to be pushing out there and saying, but we eradicated a disease that killed huge swathes of the population. Huge swathes. And we shouldn't forget those successes from the past to try and fight the information which focuses on, on the, the, the few downsides. But equally, we have to accept that the, and learn from the negative. The forced sterilization uh, in India from Indira Gandhi's era, the one child and self, uh, self, uh, sex selection uh, from China uh, from the 90s and 2000s. There are examples that are pushed out, and uh, we have to accept that uh, community health projects will sometimes uh, impinge on human rights to a point where nobody would now think that these were acceptable. And say, right, how do we learn from those episodes 
and how do we change the nuances of the argument that we're putting out there to make people understand why it's not going to be the same again in the future. We have to own our mistake as a medical profession and as leaders of countries and not shy away. Um, the, 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 the interesting uh, conversation that uh, Dr. Napier was saying here that the leaders of, uh, of the UAE took the vaccination and put themselves across. Well, um, my prime minister boasted about how he'd walked around shaking people's hands without wearing a mask. Um, that was his leadership skill to the country and then promptly got COVID. Um, so the, the ability to accept your mistakes and say, this is what I did wrong, we, we haven't heard that from our leaders, that we've made mistakes and we need to move on. And we all make mistakes, whether we're individuals or whether we're politicians. I don't think anybody has an issue with anybody in charge saying, yeah, you know what, we messed up. This was the information that we now have and we're going to change our plan. But if you do that, people will go, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, he tried his best or she tried her best. It went wrong. They've learned and moved on. You try and cover it up, it's where you promote suspicion and uh, division. Okay, Dr. Neffer, two minutes before we go to the audience questions. So if you have any questions, now would be the time to think of them. Hmm. Whose responsibility is it then? Governments, social media networks, yourself and your colleagues? Well, I believe it's, an, uh, it's all of us. All of us, we are uh, responsible. The government, the leadership are responsible. And I can say in the UAE, they are taking very big responsibility from the beginning. We as doctors, I believe that in order to give the right information, the simple information to the people, we have to be there for the people. The people are not always coming to our clinics. We should go to them. They are available on the internet, the social media on the, on, the, on the screen. I think we have to be more available in the social media to give the simple information, the basic information to the people. We should not discuss scientific information, I mean, because they, will, they might misunderstand it. But I think that we need more doctors on the social media to give the correct information, to correct the misinformation. And I think that's it. Great. Okay, we've got a good 10 minutes for questions now. It's a little bit different this year. We've got some standing mics around the place. If you pop your hand up, uh, I will direct you to a mic. I'm going to ask you to stand a little way back from it for obvious reasons, and we're not forming cues. Does anyone actually have any questions? Great, uh, pink shirt dude, to give you your official title. Hi, um, as healthcare professionals, what, what would be one source information that you would give us um, to, look, to look for uh, when, when, when it comes to COVID? Uh, Dr. Rupia Jay, do you wanna grab, one of you wanna grab that first? Uh, yeah, sure, so uh, the NHS, uh, website is one of the best sources, um, particularly the behind the headline uh, section as well. So they actually go into the new studies. Um, and there's a number of other um, websites that I personally trust. One is examine.com, which is an unbiased, uh, independent, peer-reviewed website where they look at um, uh, nutrition um, in particular. Um, and then another one, if I was allowed three, is University of Surrey website as well. Okay. Yeah, the NHS website, uh, the CDC, uh, which I use, the WHO, uh, and 
of course, when we're talking about those, um, uh, again, remember that uh, directing uh, your patients to regionally local information mm -hmm. will mean that that information will come in a way that is more understandable to that person. So the way that the NHS pros, how that reads may not be as a readable by somebody for whom English is a second language uh, for somebody in the UK. So there are international websites for sure, but also I think the nuances of the language in the local website will be uh, a huge difference, especially if we're talking about this group to try and really uh, persuade them why we're right and they're wrong. So Vanessa, where are you sending so for, people? For the UAE, we have the Ministry of Health, they have the information, the it's both in Arabic and English, but this is the, an issue because the, uh, the UAE, we have more than 200 nationalities. Uh, I'm worried about the other nationalities, like uh, the Asian, for example, the Indians and Pakistanis. Uh, sometimes they might not have the access to the information, but they can use the other sources. Uh, usually I ask them to, to join either the Minister of Health or the CDC or the WHO. And the Fabulous. Any other questions? Firstly, my parents had, I'm from the UK, my parents had COVID uh, around Christmas time. Dad was sick. I just want to say thanks. You guys have done in the NHS. It's been fantastic. It's only, I'm very proud to be British and proud to be a resident here. It's a nice thing to be part of. Um, I don't know if you already touched it. It was a little late, but I wanted to talk about the politics of Brexit and whether it's distorted views, opinions, and actions that the UK government have taken because I know Jay, you just had a pop of Boris, but he's been through a pretty tumultuous 18 months. So I, I quite like him. He's a bit of a wally, as we all know, but he, he's done the right thing a lot of times, I think. Of course, he had COVID and he was pretty sick, but the Brexit thing has obviously been dragging on and a slight embarrassment at the end for most Brits. I'll give you an example. My daughter's passport needed to be renewed last August. It took 17 weeks. I renewed my passport a month ago. It took 10 days because Brexit seems to have got out of the way now. And I wonder if judgment would have been a lot clearer if Brexit was cleared up a lot earlier than the end of December last year. So how has Brexit influenced on the, what's happened with COVID then in the UK? Who wants to grab that? Well, I could give you my view on it, which is um, not politic. And uh, uh, I should say that I'm equally happy to have a pop at the Labour Party uh, and the SNP as well. They've, they've all been singularly incompetent. Um, uh, but I, I think that where Brexit has really made a difference here, I mean, I'm sure that there is business and, and, and logistics issues, but from my point of view, it's promoting, it, it's been promoting division between different groups and uh, promoting a very binary, I'm right or I'm, or, or you're wrong. Because nobody ever thinks they're wrong. Um, view, as opposed to yeah, that's a good point. Let's think about how we can come across in the middle. The ability to have a nuanced argument where some of you uh, will say, yes, it turns out that I'm incorrect and your view is better than mine. That 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 has been put aside by the very boundary-based Brexit fight, and that's led into an equally boundary-based. COVID and, and uh, vaccination fight. Not along the exact same line. There are similarities, 
Uh, and it, it, again, it comes down to whether you take this view, the libertarian view of individual rights, or whether you take a more view of group uh, decision making. Uh, and the last thing where Brexit has come is that this is where the expert derision from politicians came about. It was from the Brexit argument. Uh, and that has now been used into the COVID vaccine discussion. But that's where it came about from. Dr. Rupi, have you got anything to add? I wouldn't say I've got much to add on the Brexit discussion. Uh, I would say uh, that I, I agree. I think the um, the lack of honesty and transparency has kind of morphed its way into discussions around COVID, which has probably bred misinformation. And I think politicians lack the ability to have a conversation about what the good things about Brexit are and the bad things about Brexit are. And no one is willing to fudge on either side, which is why it causes this division. You're either a Remainer or a Brexiteer. Um, and, and I think, again, to use that, that analogy, it's playing out into the vaccine argument as well. You're either pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. Well, actually, there, there are all shades of gray in the middle, and it's our responsibility as politicians, but also medical practitioners, to sway the conversation in the interest of the general public, in the interest of health, and in the interest of you know getting the country back to normal again and the globe back to normal again. Um, but it's those deep-rooted uh, lack of honest uh, conversations that, that have, have got us to a, a scenario where we are now. But we've also got a politicization of vaccination to a certain extent. I mean, the arguments that have been had with the EU about who gets how much and who was in the queue for it first. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. I mean, here we've got a choice, Dr. Nafa, well, and yeah. that's been political as well, hasn't it, with the Chinese vaccine? Uh, well, initially, I mean, they brought the quote-unquote Chinese vaccine for a, a trial, the, the phase three trial, and got accepted as an emergency vaccine. Now it's... Uh, we have more than one vaccine, one of, uh, one of the things. And the other things that the access for the vaccine, we don't have an, a limitation for the access to the vaccine. Every national, every, uh, everyone who's uh, living in the country can have the access to the vaccine and he can get the vaccine. Um, like, for example, our housemates get the vaccine, our, uh, our friends, doctors, even, I mean, everyone, they, they already took the vaccine. I understand that you took the first dose here in, uh, a few weeks back. So I don't think that we have uh, a limitation of the, of, in the vaccination. You can see the queue. You can see some rich people standing in the queue and see laborers standing in the same queue getting the vaccine. Because, I mean, you cannot put a limitation of, on those who take the vaccine or those who will be like the last ones in the queue. If you want to protect the whole nation, you should vaccinate everyone and it should be free, of course. Which is, so far, this is the issue. It's free for everyone. Everyone can get the vaccine here. Do we have suspicion, though, amongst the communities about what vaccine best, what comes from where? How do you counter that? Well, everyone is asking this question. What is the best vaccine? Should I take Pfizer vaccine? Should I take the, uh, the Sinopharm vaccine? And this is the new question coming last week. Should we get the Oxford vaccine? Well, my answer is get the vaccine. I will not put, I mean, I will not ask some people to take which vaccine. Just Take the vaccine, whatever vaccine is available, just take it. Because if you look at the differences, it's like asking, should I buy a BMW or a Mercedes? This is the same answer. I vote for BMW, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any more questions? 
we've got the back and then we've got one here. And we've got time for both, that's fine, as long as we keep the answers quite short, yeah? Um, hello, I'm Abdurrahman Al-Kalawi, I'm a journalist in Aroa newspaper. So I'd like to thank you all for this brilliant session. And as you should know, um, uh, fact-checking is something hitting really close to home uh, for what comes to me as a journalist. So I wanted to ask um, all uh, our guests today, uh, do they think about that whether this pandemic has shed light uh, more than ever on the dangers of freedom of speech? Because now journalists all around the world, they have some, uh, in some countries more than others, they can uh, maybe advise the public to, to drink a hand, uh, sanitizer and say that this is your cure when it compares to maybe basically someone who's been here in the UAE for over 17 years when you're basically being told exactly what happens and exactly why is this happening and why is this is not happening. And everything is basically transparent when it comes to the, uh, uh, the coronavirus or any others. And especially now uh, that social media is basically has no age limit, whether we like it or not, to who receives that piece of information. So uh, I just wanted to get everyone. Okay, I'm going to direct that to just one, actually, because we've only got four minutes left, and then our live stream cuts out. So, Dr. Rupi, do you want to take that for two minutes? Sure. I didn't hear the question completely. Can you just summarise that for me? What was the question? It was about where we get facts from? No, is, do you think that uh, the freedom of speech is, is, is really dangerous now more than ever when it comes to... Uh, oh, okay. Is, is freedom of speech dangerous? Yeah. Um, I think it definitely opens up the discussion as to how much freedom of speech uh, is permissible. And as you've seen from Twitter violations from various figures, including you know former presidents and even celebrities and stuff, you know there is a limit to free speech and how much um, uh, we, we permit that. And I think it comes down to intent. What is your intent when you put something out there in the world for everyone to see, click and share? Uh, is it to incite violence? Is it to incite racial hatred? Is it to misinform and cause harm or cause general anarchy? And I think that distinction needs to be made quite clear in today's day and age, because if we don't get that right, we risk the benefits of freedom of speech, which have allowed peaceful protests, which is currently happening in, in a number of different uh, locations around the world right now, and permits discussion and permits, you know, um, civil rights movements. Too. So it's a, it's a very difficult question, but I, I agree. I think we need to define the boundaries even more so in, in this era. Okay, last question here. Um, going back to talking about facts, it's one thing for doctors to be able to advise parents on what the facts are and how to take care of their kids in pandemics and whether to vaccine or not. But how about the not kids, but not fully adults? age group that thinks that they know everything, that they think that they have access to all the information and they can figure it out on their own and they don't believe in what's going on. So I just wanted to get your opinion on how do you approach this age group when it comes to facts. Oh, Dr. Nasser, that's your patient's age group as well. What do you think? Well, my patients are up to the age of 15, but uh, you know, the teenagers, the, the new generation are more into social media. So the same answer applies to them, although it's a bit difficult. Uh, I mean, it's very important to look for the correct information, to the correct sources. Not everyone with more followers is the right person. Because people sometimes, they trust the one who has more followers on Instagram or Twitter, especially the teenagers. 
whether this patient, uh, this person is a, is an artist or a performer or someone who has like two million followers, they will start trusting in them. It's very important to teach the new generation, the young generation, that not everything on the social media, not everything on the news, not everything on the screen is a fact. I think time will teach them. The, the, the pandemic itself will teach them that not everything that you receive on your phone is a true thing. Okay, and that brings us to the end. I have to run through some very quick thank yous. Uh, thank you to our AV team, the volunteers, the translators, our title sponsor, Emirates Airlines, our founding partner, Dubai Culture, the session sponsors for this session, which are the Investment Corporation of Dubai and Gulf News, our day sponsor, Dubai Duty Free, Emirates Literature Foundation, those who have put this festival together under some very trying conditions. They have been answering emails all day and all night. I know this firsthand. Thank you, Annabelle. Uh, and, of course, our panellists, Jay, Jay Mohan, Dr. Rupi Orjula, and Dr. Nafa Aliasi. And to you for turning up today. Thank you very much. Everyone's books are for sale in the bookshop just inside, by the way. And I know Dr. Nath is going to go and sign a bunch of his novels for you. Um, he can't do it with you, but he will do it for you. <laughs>